The Builders, the Dylan who created movements and shaped our world. Presented by Gedalia Gutentag and Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. Welcome to The Builders, a new podcast about the Gedolim who built movements and shaped our world. I'm Gedalia Gutentag, and some of you may be familiar with me from Mishpacha's pages. I'll explain the concept and the roadmap of where this series is meant to take us in a minute. But first, joining me high up above Yerushalayim, in Mishpacha's recording studio, lined, as it seems, with egg boxes, is the one and only Rabbi Ephraim Zalman Galinsky. Shalom Aleichem, Gedalia. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for coming and a warm welcome. In the spirit of Mixer Shvacha Befonov, I'd just like to say that you're a Magidche extraordinaire in Yerushalayim, but I'd actually like you to just finish off the rest of your bio for those far flung Jews who don't know you. Okay, I'm one of the editors of the Hebrew Kulmus, which is the Torah journal of the Mishpacha magazine in Hebrew. I'm the rabbinical coordinator of the rabbinical advisory board of the Mishpacha magazine. I write Svarim. And write historical articles as well. And I think it's fair to say a connoisseur of the Torah world, its Ge'onim, Sfarim, and history. Let's just spread out the vision for this new podcast and how we came to be sitting over here. Just a few feet away is a view over panorama of Yerushalayim. And one can see down into Haranof and look over and see the buildings of Bells. And I suppose... You know, there's Ger and somewhere down there is, is Mir, there's Brisk. And these are institutions that send their shoots right out across the world, connected to hundreds of thousands of Frum Jews and the Space Yaakovs. From this place in Yerushalayim, one can see, as it were, this huge, this vast Torah world that, that we now have. And just to think that 70 years ago, none of this happened. None of this existed 70 years ago, after the Holocaust, after the Churban Europa. Torah was almost gone. And we all know what came next. There was a rebuilding. If I may interject, okay, yeah. this, this is a discussion I have many times with young boys, teenagers. I'm always pressing them to learn about history, about our history. I'm talking about secular history. I'm talking about Yiddish, Jewish history. And they always, they always have the same answer. They say, what do we need it for? We want tachlitz. We want to learn? Let's learn. We want to do other things? I'll read the novels. But history, Jewish history? What is important for? And you just mentioned a very important nakuda, which I think everyone has to, have to has to realize. In order to understand the chazdei Hashem of what we're experiencing today, you must know history. You take it for granted. If you don't know what was here 70 short years ago, you're missing out a great part of hakoros toivas hakodesh And that's, that's a very important part of Yiddishkeit. Hakoros HaToiv is like all the Sifrei Musa talk about. Hakoros HaToiv towards HaKadosh Baruch towards other people is the basis. Right? We say why it was Moshe Rabbeinu chosen because he expressed through his actions Hakoros HaToiv. If you don't know what went on 70 years ago, you're missing out Hakoros HaToiv. You know, there's the Hakoros HaToiv and you say, and there's also, I think, a few weeks ago I came to you and I said, look, I have a theory. Okay, and it's almost like a theory of this seven, this last 70, 80 years, the theory of the rebuilding, which is that you can take the entire vast Torah world, and it really is, you know, just kind of spreading out and growing, Baruch Hashem. You can take it and you can boil it down to a handful of figures who, without them, the builders of vast movements, visionaries, ideologues, and gedolim, it would not be possible to be here today. 
that was my idea that we can have a series in which we map out, as it were, we reverse engineer the Torah world that we now see, the vast Torah world, and we boil it down to understand these key figures and the role that they played in coming in. So, and so, just a yeah. disclaimer, right? Mm. This by no means comes to diminish the roles of other people who played major roles in Psak and in, in Lomdes, in Musser, Nashkofa. What we're talking about now, like in the structural meaning of, of, of what's going on today, is that who built the structures doesn't mean that others are less chashuv, right? We're talking about trying to define the roles of who built the structures of Yiddishkeit as we see today. Certainly, and I think there's no better place to start and personality to start. An obvious personality, given the timing, is a goner of Aaron Kotler, Roshiva of Kletsk and Lakewood, whose 60th yard site is now. It's been marked in the pages of Mishpacha with a, no other way to describe it, magnum opus by Dovi Sofi Yehuda Gebra, our in-house Wunderkind. And you won't be able to hear, but if we just hear over here the thunk, the sound of the vast work hitting the table over there. So, so I've been reading through this with interest. By the way, I don't think Mishpacha magazine ever dedicated an entire supplement. Besides when the Gdolim Munifter, but we're talking about 60 years later, they never dedicated an entire supplement to cover one personality, one, one girl ever. This is the first. And at 25 thousand words and counting until we close later. It's a masterpiece and there's, there's so much in there. Rafa, I'd just like to start with a story. I'd like you to start with a story because I like hearing stories. I think the stories are the currency and the kind of journalistic gold dust. So let me ask you straight out. If you have a, a story that you feel encapsulates who Rab Aaron was and what he achieved, over to you. I have a very interesting story. I just want to point out that even though I have a, a semi-white beard, I was born a few years after Rabaran was Nifter. So I don't have any personal memories f- from Rabaran, but I had the schutz of learning by two great Talmidim of Rabaran Kotler from two different Kufis in, in Lakewood. The first one, the older one was, uh, they were both brother in- brothers-in-law. Both of them were Roshivas in, in Hebron Yeshiva in, in Yerushalayim. And I studied by them 35 years ago, dropped more. One of them, the older one was Abil Zaks, was a prime Talmud of, of Rabarn in the early years. He was Mishamashim a lot, and he got a lot of Hanog and Ashkafa from him, besides from in, in Lomdus. The younger one was Rabarn Yafin, tremendous Ilui. If you know the Ritva Yavomis, the Horus on the Ritva Yavomis. Is related to Rabarn Yafin? He's a grandson. His father was a Bianca Chaim, also Goyen Oilom, Roshiva Besesef in Navarduk. And his father's father was a Bavram Yafin, who was Roshiva with Navarduk worldwide, and then came to Ertisol into America after the war. I used to discuss Gdoilim with Rabbi Lozak, and I had many stories I heard from him. One of the stories that stands out was about Baron Cutler, and it's contrary to the common perspective that people have about Baron. But it's, it's very important to hear the story. As Happens many times in yeshivas. The bacham are always complaining about the food in yeshiva. I've yet to find a yeshiva where the bacham don't complain. Even if the yeshiva caters them like five course meals, the bacham are always going to complain about the food in the yeshiva. So this happened in Lakewood as well in the years of Rabban, while Rabbi was learning there. First to describe to me, I was never there. He described to me the the way the lunchroom was built in the yeshiva was that they had the room where all the Bachman were sitting and eating. And adjoining that room was like a small side room where Rabban used to sit. They used to bring him the food. 
Hold on, the Reb Aaron was there, I understand, earlier over Shabbos in general. During so the it either happened on Shabbos or it happened during the week. That I don't, I'm not thinking of Christ. In any case, there was a side room, okay? The side room had two doors, or two doorways to it. One of them was like from the kitchen, straight into the room. And one of them was straight into the lunchroom with the bar. So the meaning was that out of Snews, so the cook, the lady cook, used to stand at the entrance to Ravaran's room when the Bachram used to come, and she didn't want to go in. And then so one of the Bachram who came in, they used to take the tray, put it on Ravaran's desk, and continue on into the lunchroom. So uh, the Bachram were complaining, 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 and uh, Ravaran decided something has to be done. They sit down with the cook, with this, she was an almana. And they sat down and made a whole plan, like uh, pension and and living con- conditions and whatever you want, like to satisfy the needs of this this almana. And uh, they were going to hire another cook to take over to satisfy the Bachram's needs. You mean this was about moving a generational change in the kitchen, moving aside the old guard, right? Exactly. And getting okay, new new blood in the kitchen, right? Okay, this I understand. Understood from the story. This took a long time. This all the discussions and you know to make sure that everything is fine. She's not heard about it, and she has all her her the salary and living whatever everything was taken care of. And the day came, the last day of the almana, as a cook in the yeshiva. Yeah. She's standing at the entrance to the Rabban's room, and she says she wants to come in. It's first time. First time she ever came into the room. So Rabban said, okay, let her come in. She stands opposite Rabban on the, next, to the, next to the table, like the other side of the table. Rabban is looking down at the table, okay? He's not looking at her. He's looking down at the table. And all of a sudden, he sees two teardrops. Tick, tick, onto the table. You have to understand, Rabban Kotl was Leuchem Mulchomis Hashem. Okay, everyone describes. I once heard a recording that my father, Olav Shalom, had from his teenage years of Rabban Kotler speaking about the Begia and the Briskarov, about the Hegel Shloimer controversy. Mm-hmm. It was a minister in the government who spoke about, not Bekovid, okay, <laughs> to say the least, about the Briskarov. And even though Briskov, I understand, didn't want to make a machah, but in America they did do make a machah, and Rabban Kotler spoke of that machah. So we had that recording at home. If you remember those old reels that you have to, like, wrap around. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I think I'd, maybe, okay. Okay, we're talking about a gigantic machine that had, like, two uh, reels. In order to listen, you'd have to take the edge of one reel and, and, and wrap it around the next one, and then you turn it on, and it would start turning around. Okay, and you would see the whole uh, the whole machinery. Hold on, but Fran, are you sure you didn't see it around Cutler? <laughs> no, I didn't. No. <laughs> so I heard that that recording speaking about the begin the Briskarov. Mm-hmm. You heard Rabban's fire when he spoke. What was his accent? No, Litvish for sure. <laughs> there was no, uh, but but you heard like they always said about Rabban. I heard this in the, in the recording that his it was like rapid fire, right? You heard that, mm-hmm. and I heard that. So Rabbi Lozak says, you have to understand, Rabban was Lechem Melchames Hashem. And when he saw those two drops, he started to shiver. Mm-hmm. And he said, will it gain? Will it gain? You don't want to leave? He told this, this Alman. Mm-hmm. Go back to work. And that's how he ended the story. 
And that was the end of the, the boy's uh, hope for uh, a change in the kitchen. What's the takeaway from that message? Besides the fact that the cuisine in Lake Kodeshiva obviously took some time to recover after that. Pashup Shad is that, that no matter how strong and fiery he was in, in Muhammad Hashem that he took part in, when it came to Ben Adam and to Tsar uh, Valamona, that's it. There's nothing that uh, takes precedence for that. When I heard the story, you know, these type of stories like change your whole perspective. Next time you talk to someone who's bizarre, that changes changes your life. Beautiful. So that leads us into, let's just say, a roadmap for kind of this discussion over here. How can you makiv? How can you assess a life in general? A lot, you know, and one which was of of such a great person, a god like that, impossible. But categories over here. What is interesting to me is Aaron was. We know he was in yeshivas from age eleven. He was built by someone, by other, by people, by, 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 by other gedolim. Where was Rav Aaron built and what characteristics did he pick up in those early years that were going to define his future? I think it's fair to ask. I don't know if we're going to get any answers, but it's just worth breaking down the machshavas over here. Num- number two, I think we can say, what did Rav Aaron himself build? Meaning, you know, there's liquid and there's, there's so many different things, but in terms of what was his unique imprint on the on the world and cr- the creation of the part of the, of the Torah world that reflects and that, that that echoes down to today, sixty years later, and how did he go about shaping? I think what you could say is the raw materials, the raw clay of post World War II America, and fashioning it into you know what we know as the American Torah world. I think I, I think yeah. you're overlooking something. There's yep. certain nakud over here. That you're always stressing America. You have to understand, Rabban was a godl for Yisrael as well. that when Rabban was nifter, there was a special, like, I don't know, a clause, a certain, uh, something that was passed in the Moetzik Dora that said that even though until this point, the Moetzik Dora in America had Ashpo, what was going on in politics in, in Yisrael, from now on, it's not going to be the same. So Rabban had Ashpo. You have to understand one thing. The Tukufa Rabban, when he was the, the Manigador, there was a tremendous machloikis here in Israel regarding participation in the elections. It was, wasn't so posh at all. The foremost power in Israel regarding participation in the elections was Rabban Kotler, even though he didn't live here. Rabban Kotler used to come every time there was an election. He used to fly in to Israel and give fiery speech, speeches to convince people. And this was the push. I doubt if Rabban Kotler wouldn't have been on the scene in Israel. I'm not so sure. Not the Chazanish, for example. The Chazanish was for the elections, but even till today, you have all these arguments. What did the Chazanish exactly say? It's all like Diukim and his Lashonis in letters. But to stand out there in the front, that's why there was a certain confrontation with the Satmarov, right? The Satmarov and Rabban used to come to Israel and they used to both fight it out publicly about, fight it out, okay, between Doylem, yeah, but discuss this idea, and, and, and it's, and this was here in Eretz Yisrael, and the second Kuda you're talking about, Hashpar, was built on Rabban, again, with other other people as well, but Rabban was the main force of the funding of Chinuch Hatzmoy, which changed the face, if you're asking me today, People tend to say that it's uh, due to Rabbi Vadi Yosef's uh, efforts, right? They're forgetting that Chinuch Atzmoi efforts. Still ongoing, although I think less 
has, has fa- faded more into the into the background. I've had to say Chinuchatzmo still exists, but it's not definitely because you have the Elamayan, which is the the Sfardi like uh, version of Chinuchatzmo, but Chinuchatzmo still is strong in many many so places. Let's just define it. Chinuchatzmo being the independent, totally independent education system for aimed at secular or traditional children. Exactly right. Funded by by especially for, by it used to be today to Medina already. Funds uh, the majority of it, but at first the the, the formal the first years mm-hmm. of my no doubt it was Rabban Kotler together with other Gdolim, especially the Capitan Sarebbe in, in America, who also was was part of that effort. But uh, but Rabban Kotler was the driving force behind Chinuchatzmoi, which probably it's it's my guess, and I'm sure you can you can prove that that the the, the great Shuva movement today of the traditional Israelis is. Due to the fact they had many, many families who sent their kids to Chinuch That's very hard to prove, but let's just give the children movement here in Eretz Yisrael the statistics. Actually, unlike Chutzlaras, where we have, a, I think they say it's something like a quarter of a million Bali Chuva here in a country of what less than eight million, you know, seven and a half million Jews, etc. It's a massive demographic. Yeah, you, you can see the change in the last elections. In the last elections, the half of the current coalition that's going to be starting in another few days, half are. You never had this before. This didn't come out of the air, out of thin air. So that's the kind of the the macro of some of the things of Aaron. Uh, and we're going to, I think... So that's our yeah. point here. And it's a story. I just yeah. want to point out that it's not it's only not, in America. When we talk about this, I think it was sort of Laser Silva who said that he called him the first transatlantic Rosh Hashiva. He wasn't a Rosh Hashiva. It was, it was in that sense. He was the first transatlantic. He was a global figure. Yeah, people was, don't realize that he, he actually had, had a pachad from flying. Did you know this, uh, Dalia? Rabbi had pachads from Uganda to a plane. And yet he must have cut, as you said, well, if they had elections, anything like us. And he used to come, that shows he's a mysterious nefesh. Yeah, but he, he didn't have to come as uh, every six months for elections. That's the difference <laughs> that he used to do. So it was only... But he, he came to give shir in Eitzheim. Yeah. He came to give shir. Where, where he was the Rosh Hashiva. In Eitzheim, in Yushalayim. He took over Rabbi Zalman, who was his father-in-law. Let's, I think, begin from the beginnings over here. Rabbi Aaron was born... I think in 1892, and in the beautiful work over here by the Davi Safer and Yudagebra, they kind of come out with this story as a starting point, as a symbolism. Because what happened was, in that year, was that in 1892, Velozhin, obviously the Emei Shivas, this legendary institution, was, was closed down for the second time or whatever it was. It was finally closed, and that was because of the whole run-ins over the secular education. Or it, 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 by the way, it did reopen later on. It did be under the under the leadership of Rafal Shapiro, which is uh, right. an itziv son-in-law, but it never reached its original chashivas in the Olam Torah. So I think at some distance from there, when this was happening, or shortly afterwards, there was a little baby born to the rough of a place called Sislavitz, whatever unpronounceable name it was in the local jargon, the, the Jewish name Sislavitz. So Roshnir Zaman and Sarah Pesha Pinas. So Rav Aaron's name should be, not Kotler, it was Pinus. How did Pinus become Cutler? It probably had to do with the, the army laws, draft laws at that time. To uh... Right. So I think that was the case. And, and the Pinuses, his uh, Aaron Zichus, the Megala Amukas and Rashi, which, fun fact, Rabbi uh, Fraim, that makes me a 25th cousin of Aaron Cutler. Makes me cousin to you also. Oh, uh, we're also, you're also from, what, from, from Megala Amukas or Rashi? From, from Rashi. It, it makes. Probably most I, of the lead, my great grandfather, I'm named after, yeah. on his matzeva in Harmanuchus, it says only one title. It says Neched Rashi, right? Even though he wasn't the di- direct grandson. Point is, it's a title that could have 
well applied to half the Kavarim in, in, in Haram Ruchas, uh, the Ashkenazi Chalokim thereof. So my attempt to, to find a, a common ground with Aaron Cutler is failing so far. But anyway, in those early years, so Aaron was Arka. He was an Iloi. And I think it's worth worthwhile talking a minute about the the, il, the Iloishness and what it meant. But uh, he had a very difficult childhood in the sense that his father was the Rav, but his mother passed away when 1896 it would have made him four. His father was nifted in 1903, which is when he was 11 years old. He became a Yasum from, from both. And apparently by 11, I mean, he, he'd long been known as an Iloi, just a total prodigy and, and somebody who was clearly destined for greatness. Just to round this out, to complete what I said before about the Velozhin thing, Velozhin had just been closed and his father, Rav Schneer Zalman, who was one of the Talmudim of, of Velozhin. So uh, Talmud of Velozhin, not so far away from Velozhin, had a baby who would ultimately create Torah in America in that sense. That's a beautiful... Now, playing off that, what you just yep. said, is that uh, that fits in very well into the very well-known saying of Reb Chaim himself, who said that Torah, the last stop of Torah before the Biyas Mashiach will be in America. So it comes out that uh, a son of a Talmud of Velozhin, who was born the day after it was closed down, was the one who re- uh, recreated... That's actually a beautiful additional layer to that, right, to the, the, the famous idea of... Uh, so he ended up first in a place called in Krinik. He was sent by his uncle, if, if I'm not mistaken, to Yeshiva age 11. It's mind-boggling when you think that in terms of, uh, you know, he would have been young, but young teenagers being sent off on their own and people being sent. We live in a much more uh, soft, cuddly world. And the world that sent Baron Kutloff to, you know, to Yeshiva age 11 is a very, very, very different world. I think it's important just to flesh out why that was happening. And I think it had to do with it, the fact that around... The Eastern European, what had been this ancient Torah civilization, was crumbling. You know, Haskalah, the various isms, Zionism, Bundism, were, were ripping things to shreds. Modernity in, in general. Modernity was they, they, incorrect. They, yeah. they say, contrary to what people think, that Haskalah was the, the major component against the Yiddishkeit, they say the major component was the railroad tracks, creating railroad tracks from yeah. the little Stetlach out into the world. Connecting you know, it to one big world in which ideas could travel. That's a very interesting, uh, that's a very interesting, right, we're always talking about uh, this kind of cliches that you have, uh, I don't know, Haskalah and this and It's that. true, yeah. I mean, it's true, there's yeah. no doubt, but yeah. uh, but you had, you had this fact as well. It was modernity, encroaching, encroaching modernity. Rebaran's own family suffered from this because apparently his older sister left and she became secular and she was very determined, um, from what I understand, she was determined to, that her brilliant, Iluish younger brother, who was clearly such a mind that he would, you know, he, he, he should go and become an academic and ultimately secular. She pushed, she pushed him in that direction. That was the background. So he was sent off to Yeshiva to presume to escape this and, and he was first under Reb Zalman Sendika Han Shapira. Who's that? Reb Zalman Sender, it's the, the, the lack of knowledge today about the, the Gdolim of uh, pre-war Europe is, is so great. I remember, I remember sitting by, I told you, I used to schmooze with Rebbe Zaks, you know, Shalshura is, you know, just uh, talk to him about the Gdolim of pre-war Europe. He had a tremendous Messiah that he received from his father, who is the, the Adam, the son-in-law of the Chavetz Chaim. He's Mendel Zaks. Rebbe Zaks was the son of Rebbe Mendel, yeah. and Rebbe Mendel was the Chavetz Chaim's son-in-law. Right. So I remember him talking to me about all the names, and I was like, I never heard these names before. I remember he once he once spoke about a name called Rabdavid Kalina. Right, so you hear the name, a, a, a standard Yeshiva Bachar, Rabdavid Kalina, probably Sounds one of the like the Stalinists, one of the <laughs> Kalina Rebbes, right? But he was actually one of the great, or if not, this is what Abilo told me, he was the Godel Hator of the Litvish in 
pre-war Europe. Mikdas David? No, Mikdas David is the David Rappaport, which okay. is in, in Baranovich. Okay. David Kalina was very, 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 very short. I don't know if you, if you heard... You heard stories about Abdul Kalin. In any case, he was mentioning these names, okay? Just on that, totally random. Remind me to, uh, we have to discuss this one time. What is it with Gadali Sherlin being short, right? <laughs> you know, the Forbes 500 list of CEOs is the other way. You know, if you're over six foot, you've got a good chance of being mega wealthy. But what is it, Gadali Sherlin being short? It's different. I don't know how. The Africa about Abdul Kalin yeah. is a story, but we're not going to talk about it okay, now. It's, okay. it's, a, it's a different story about how, how that happened. But in any case, we're talking about Gadali of pre war. Abdul Sender, I'm almost sure, was the father of the Kovner of. You, you, you should check this out, okay? The father of the Kovner of Avram. Right, right. So I'm almost sure this is his father. He had a yeshiva in uh, Kirinik. I think it was in, in a different place before called Malich, I think. By the way, we have a family connection to that because my wife's great-grandfather was a mashgiach in that yeshiva. So we know about this this uh, this uh, yeshiva that we're talking about. But Zam Sender, what people don't know is that he made aliyah at his in his old age, and he lived in Chari Chesed. Was it his son or was it a nephew or something? Rabbi Vron Kanishapir was the chief rabbi over here. It the, could be there was a relationship. I have to check that. Rashiva Merkazarab. Right, right. It, was, it could okay. be. It could be there was a relationship, okay. but I have to check that out. Rabbi Shem Zalman, being someone who lived in Chari Chesed, used to come periodically to Abzalman uh, Sender to talk to him in, in learning. It's so uh, common of Yerushalayim of all. They had these great, great geoinim who were just living in Yerushalayim. No one knew about them. And he's just like, and Abzalman Sender was one of them. And he came, made Aliyah, and two years later, he was Nifter in, in Eretz Yisrael. But he was one of the, the, the great geoinim of pre-war Europe. And Urban learned by so, him. So Urban, the Chagav, there are Nigunim. There are Nigunim, the Olim Yeshivas today, which are sourced from Zalman Sender. He had his, a chush of a... He was a composer. A composer of Nigunim. And he... Well so there are Nigunim that, that come from him. So there he was, and he seems to have moved on to a short, I think, couple of Zalman he spent there, and he moved on to Slabodka. There was a story how he got there, and there was a very beautiful story. Again, I'm referring you to, to, this, to this massive work over here. A beautiful story of the person who had provided the money for the two young, little, very little Yeshiva Bacharim to go off to Slabodka. And just to get on a, a railway was not something they could afford. And decades later, somebody told him that these two Bacharim were turned out to be Naran Kotlin and Ryaki Kamenetsky. It's a very, very beautiful story. And, and I won't go into it now, but it's just, for me, the beautiful thing is, is when you support Torah, you don't know what can be in the, the, the incredible nuclear explosive power that can come out from those couple of train tickets. I mean, it's possible they would have got there separately, a walk there. Um, they would have walked there for three weeks probably. But it's the fact is, this... this you this had a chelik in changing the world. Chelik in changing the world. And with Torah, you don't, you don't... It's a separate discussion. We see it again and again that at the time, people are not machshavit and it's not... It, but it, later on, it, it's, it, it can be a wow. So there he was. And he, he ended up in Knesset Beis Yitzchak, which was... Right, so that, that part of the article, I was very surprised because I read a lot of books about Gdolin throughout my life. And the, the, the Masoyas that I always heard about Rabban Kotler was that he came to learn in the, in the Alter's Yeshiva. Mm-hmm. And they used to sneak out and go listen to the Shurim or Bochber in the competing Yeshiva mm-hmm. in Knesset Beis Yitzchak. Now... The way they tell the story is that they came at an earlier point before the, the, the machloikas between the two parts of the yeshiva. And this whole story about sitting out and listening to the shir came at a later time. This is something that I, I okay. never heard of, but I'm relying okay. on their research. That, well, that, I'll defer accurate. to you and to them. The point is, I think, I think the, the story really starts over here in what was the Alta's yeshiva. 
And it seems that the Alta saw that this was an extraordinary type of young Bacha, and he gave him special attention, you know, in terms of, I think the Alta Slavodka must have been an extraordinary educator because uh, I've heard it, so, heard it said before, and the fact that out of that kind of like, it was a factory for Gedolim of very, very, very different nature. Each one was, was, was you know, who was there? Rebizu Kutna, very different from Ryaka Kamenetsky, very different from Aaron. Uh, there's a uh, yeah. very interesting Nakuda in the in the sefer called Tnuah Samusa written by Rabbi Dov Katz, who talks about the shita of the Alter of Slabotka. He talks about the Nakuda you just read, and it was it was mechuven from from the Alter. The, the norm in other yeshivas is, especially Baruch Ber, Buskarov, and all that, that you would learn a few years by the same Rosh Hashiva in order to absorb his shita Salimud, right? The Alter of Slabotka b'mechuven. He deliberately refused to allow Bahram to stay more than a year by one Rosh Hashiva. They would have to go because he didn't want you to become a copy, a carbon copy of that Rosh Hashiva. He wanted you to create your own your own style and learning. Very, very interesting. There's a scary story about the altar, about this this idea, but in the Musa, in the realm of Musa, a very scary story. I don't want to take a chrys on the accuracy of the story, but this is a message that I heard is that Yerucham once learned by the altar of Slobotka, and w- while he was very much Giech, I think either in Raden or, or in the Mir, he once came to Slobotka, and he came to talk to him behind closed doors, and the altar was screaming at him day after day. He came into him, like came to visit, and day after day he would come in, and the altar was screaming at him, and the boys, you know, Yeshiva Bachram, they <laughs> eavesdropped, and the idea of the altar was you're creating carbon copy images of yourself in the mirror. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. That fits in well with the altar's, altar's shita, that to try to cause the person to express his potential, not, not to be a carbon copy of the Rebbe. So, I mean, from those early years, we just have testimony about his tremendous precociousness, the goinus that was there in early years. Just to give us an idea what it meant in that kind of elite setting of, of, of great minds in, in, in Slabotka, the Slabotka then was, to be first among equals. Give us an idea of just how great he was considered at a young age. I have a story that I, that I have in my Masoyers. I did not see it in, in the articles that are written in this edition or in other places. There was a minig in Slabotka that when you had an extraordinary chidush in the sugya, you would get, go to the bima and give a, a, a clap. And uh, the guys would gather around you, mm-hmm. and you would uh, tell your chiddush. And that was that was a slabotka. Slabotka, right? When was this minute discontinued? When Rabban Kotler entered the, entered the yeshiva, because day after day, Rabban was going over to the bima and giving a clap on the bima. Interesting. So okay, <laughs> so you can understand where Rabban was holding. Where it. he was ranked. <laughs> I'm very I'm very young. Actually, getting back to just uh, as an aside, the idea of Slabotka being the individualism that the Alta wanted to bring out. Can you imagine in another yeshiva where there was a, a strict hierarchy? You want to say something in public? You've got to be a maggot shit. It sounds like it was part of the attempt to encourage and to foster their own individuality. But when I look back at those snapshots of those early years, Arka growing into uh, a Bacha, growing into an Ilu like this, what I think is, is extraordinary, I think we see when there's Gainus and, and, and the Godless, the Torah greatness, when it's genuine and extraordinary, it will show itself very, very young. 
the stories that we, one, one heard and reads about the Vilnagon, for example, with his tremendous knowledge, age three and five, etc. There is room for people to become Godali Israel later, but they're truly extraordinary ones. They develop very, very young. So moving on to the second period in, in his life, and this is from when he gets married. He gets married in 1914, he's 22, to Hannah Perel, whose daughter is Zalman Meltzer, his mother was Vela Hinda, and he moves his father-in-law, Rissa Zalman. Was... You're skipping the part of how they got engaged. Go on. Rabban Kotl's name was mentioned in awe throughout the circles of the yeshiva world. I believe it's, it's probable that many people had their eyes on him. Rissa Zalman Meltzer had a brother-in-law who is a Roshiva in Slabotka by the name of Mushmotre Epstein. There's a story in the article about how that happened, how Mushmotre got the job. It's a very interesting story so to, to see the article. Rabbi Zalman received the, the tip, I guess, from his brother-in-law about, about Rabban Kotler, and uh, he didn't do anything about it. And then a Mashulach came to town and, like mentioned by passing, you should know there's a big Ilui in Slabotka by the name of Aaron Kotler. And Rabbi Suzaman said to his wife, put on his coat, and he says, I'm leaving at this second because I heard that his name is uh, he's becoming famous and it's going to be a matter of time. So I understand his daughter was, was engaged at a relatively young age because Rabbi Suzaman was determined to... Which explains, I think, the engagement was two years. Once he locked in the option, <laughs> right. they were able to wait. So from this, she must have been an extraordinary person as well. We know, we know that she had tremendous ideas in Tanakh. They bring a story that she sit in the joining room and listen right. to a shurim and comment. Oh, she anticipated the answers. <laughs> Hold on. So she was one of the only people who could follow her. Right, exactly. We spoke before <laughs> that very few people could follow her. Very few people follow her. Mission is her, but she could. Anyway, so. By the way, her mother. Yeah. Her mother was like that as well. Who was, who was she? Rabbi Zalman's wife was like that as well. She was tremendous Yadonis in, in Tanakh. There are stories about Gdolim coming to visit Rabbi Zalman and arguments uh, starting between these Gdolim and the Rebetzin about Psukim in Tanakh. During that period, I mean, really what we're seeing is 1914, he's getting married then, and it's the beginning of the upheaval. People forget, it's forgotten, how destructive World War I was in terms of destroying Kahilas. Rav Issa Zalman brought in his young son-in-law to be, eventually, very, very quickly became involved with the yeshiva. And after some time, when the Soviets took over, the border changed, and Slutsk, where uh, Rav Issa Zalman lived and had his yeshiva with the Rav, ended up on the wrong side of, of the body, it ended up in the Soviet Union. Quickly, it became clear that there was going to be no future over here. So they was decided to move the yeshiva, and the yeshiva, Rabbi Salman stayed behind as Rosh Yeshiva uh, with, with some Bachrim, uh, from what I understand, but to continue his duties as, as the Rav of the town. And Rabbi Aaron took the yeshiva to Kletsk. That's where he began, essentially, to become his own... Try to imagine, this yep. move was taken when he was 29 years old. To smuggle through the border and create his own yeshiva on the other side of the border when he was 29 years old. Try to imagine today people who are 29 years old taking upon themselves a certain achrayis. You were mentioning before, do we see greatness at a person's young age, right? See the achrayis at age 29. 
Yeah. That's, this uh, includes fundraising and dealing with authorities, smuggling the border. This is a so you had to welfare heal. of the Bahram. Correct. As you said before, Bahram need to eat. In every generation, Bahram have demonstrated the need to eat. And so he was then, he was able to arrange, he had to, under, under wartime conditions and under uh, refugee conditions, he was able to arrange a bread supply, very basic, bread and water, paspa melech, and that's, that's what it was. Just skipping over quickly, but he was beginning to demonstrate, I think, the leadership that was going to need as he reestablished the Torah world and overseas, as you say, in America and beyond. One thing, very important thing to note, one imagines a Superman, in many ways he was, but Rav Shach said about him, for example, that he heard him in Kletsk in his yeshiva there, and he said Rav Aaron Kotler had tremendous stage fright. Now, this is a person of tremendous courage and leadership and, and a genius, and yet he had stage fright. Stage fright, and so much so that when someone, a, a visitor came in who wasn't part of the regular shit, it was very, very difficult for him to continue. And Roshach, what he would say later was that someone who takes on a leadership role, it gains the strength to go beyond his nature. And I think one of the important lessons over there, when you talk about Gadlis and talk about Torah leadership, the will and the, and the drive to achieve it can outweigh whatever personal insecurities and fa- failings there are. Um, and I don't think Rav Shach meant that he all of a sudden received a matanam in a shamayim to overcome his stage fright. What he meant was that a person does the Masus Nefesh to go into a leadership role, he receives Siyad Ishmael along the way. Mm-hmm. Probably, that's, uh, that's my guess, that's what yeah. Shach meant. So this leadership began to express itself more and more. And when he was in his early 30s, he was already one of the senior Rosh Hashiva, the generation. Rosh Hashiva would double his age and the great legendary figures are back, back there. And what I think was becoming clear at that age was incredible Torah greatness, right, that set him head, head and shoulders, together with a unique ability and drive of creating new institutions and building. And during during those years, he was involved in the in, in, in running what was, I think, the Vada Yeshivas, right? The Vada Yeshivas was a very important body that, what was that in, the, in those years? This was a creation by the Rabbi Chaim Moiser and the Chavetz Chaim with a staff of dedicated people. I think one of the people's name was uh, Sher, and I think Rabbi Chizkiyo Mishkovsky was also in, involved in that, one of Rabbi Chaim Moiser's uh, right-hand men. The matzav of, of the Olam Yeshivas after World War I was, was terrible, and they needed a central body to collect funds, from, especially from Chutzlah, from America, from Europe, from Western Europe. And the survival of the Adam Yeshivas in, the, in those periods was due to them. He was involved in that, and he had an idea in 1933 when the Chavetz Chaim was in he said, we're going to write Sefer Torah and obviously make it into a, a big fundraising campaign. And, and, and fundraising campaigns based around uh, that type of thing have us, those were early days, we're very good at that nowadays. Rav Aaron, I think, showed a certain type of pikhus of, of, of understanding, clever understanding of human nature, in which he said he urged everyone to strike while the iron was hot, to get the people signed up and do the fundraising immediately, you know, the same way that we do with a uh, crowdfunding campaign. But I think one important thing, last important thing to mention in that time was his journey to America. Because in 1935, despite everything he did to, to, to fundraise and put the yeshiva Kletsk on the good footing, and this was before, obviously, things were getting uncomfortable in Eastern Europe, but still, the yeshiva world was the future over there, looked like it. And he ended up spending 11 months in the United States going around and collecting for the yeshivas. And I think it was in that time that one of the crucial links and collaborations that were established there was meeting legendary figure of Shagafav Medlovich. Among other young people in the United States who eventually would become the heads of that Gurus Yisrael. And he inspired them. What was the age gap between the two? No, we're talking about uh, Mike Tress at that time was probably a bocher, a young bocher. But uh, through Tziri Agudas Yisrael, which was founded at that time, uh, 
he met him and Rabbi Wasserman made a tremendous impression. These, these were examples of the Gdolim Europe who came over to America. It was the first exposure of these uh, young people, which inspired them to become the leaders of the Frum, Frum Jewry after, afterwards, later on. But Rabbi uh, Shagar Feivel was, uh, was an uh, older person already at that time. Older than Rabbaran? He must uh, I, don't, I don't know if he was older than Rabbaran, but I don't think he was, uh, he was for, so, for sure the same age group. Uh, Shagafaivel was an interesting figure. He was a Hungarian, from a Hungarian background. People see him as a type of an Askin, who together with Rabbaran opened up Torah Masora and uh, opened up Torah Vadas and brought in Rosh Hashivas. But uh, my Masora that I received from Rabbi Zaks was, uh, Shagafaivel was a truly spiritual person. And, and a lot of the Talmudim in Torah Vadas received their, their uh, U.S. Shamayim, their Ashkafa, and Torah in general, they received from Shagafaivel, not necessarily from the Roshivas. They received Lamdas from the Roshivas, but uh, but the the Yiddishkeit and the Bren and the was he was he an official a Mashkiach of, of the no, place? No, no, no. 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 But that was, was that was founder. He was just right. a founder. He, he he refused to be called Rav Bichal. He was called Mister. Mister. Yeah, right. they called him Mister. I think if you're looking back on that period that ended with the Second World War, again he was at the top of the ladder, as it were, in leading Rosh Hashiva in the old world of Lita. At a young age, with that brilliance combining, I, I suppose you could you could call it Torah in terms of the Torah greatness and the greatness of of the ability to act on behalf of on behalf of the Torah world and to build. Almost like one can see the hashkacha, the providence that 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 led such a figure of all people to be sent and led, be allowed to escape to America, which is where I think the final chapter or the largest chapter of his of his life was written. Now, there's an interesting part in the article that you mentioned from, from the latest uh, Mishpacha supplement that Rabban did not want to leave his yeshiva until the very last second. And his father-in-law used to send him letters. What are you waiting for? You have, you have the opportunity to leave. And the only reason why he left was because he realized that in America, he'll be able to do more for his yeshiva, for the, the refugees of his yeshiva, more than he can do in Europe. That's how he came to America. But for them, the rest is history. Once he was saved, and uh, he did a lot to, to try to save his, his Talmudim, some of them were, were saved through uh, Japan and, and other places. That changed the face of from Jury in America. Before I'm, I just want to end this particular segment over here with a story that I think is one of these stories that if you're a brisker, you'd have to take it apart and really understand, really learn it like a sugya. Rabaran is, is in America. He gets to America and he throws himself into rescue work. Irving Bunim, the great activist then, accompanied him on so many of these missions, met with, I think it was Roosevelt's Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau, who was an assimilated Jew from, uh, sounds like, from a German background. And there's this incredible encounter in which you see Rabaran revealed in the kind of the splendor of what it is to be a Torah leader. And so Irvin Bunning writes that he says, I recall when our great Rebbe called on, on the secretary, uh, Henry Morgenthau. At that time, Vad Hatzola had $1 million, which is for, for transfer, to, and they had these schemes that were, that were you know, to, to bribe the Nazis, to, to, to barter Jewish lives for, for the Nazis. And eventually, but they ran into a brick wall. I mean, 1 million is an enormous amount of money back in the day. And the Treasury Department said, well, no, you're not transferring money to the, to the enemy in wartime. But this was to rescue Jews. And so, and so they sit down together and the Rosh Hashiva looks at Morgenthau, faces him. And Morgenthau says, we're not going to allow these, these ransom payments to be to, paid to the enemy. 
And the Rosh Hashiva, and he describes, and it's just worth uh, reading this, the Rosh Hashiva, his piercing eyes flashing with fury, right? And you saw those, those brilliant blue eyes, spoke emphatically in Yiddish. Tell him, perhaps he's afraid of losing his post. He should be mindful that the life of one single Jew is valued higher than his entire prominent position. I mean, that's just an incredible, incredible thing to just to, just to think that you'd actually go there. This was a little Yid who was a refugee who represented, you know, this, this part of the world that was irrelevant to the new world. And he's sitting opposite the one of the most powerful people in America, happens to be Jewish, and he's telling him, you are worth nothing as much as the cause that I represent. And so Irving Bunim says, you know, as naturally he tries to tamp diplomatically. Down. Diplomatically, he's, you know, he's speaking, he speaks in English, and he's and he says, well, you know, there's a comes a time when a Jew's life maybe be put in place just for this, and and then Aaron cut him off and says, nay, nay, Bunim. He said, Bunim, no, no, tell him exactly what I said. Tell him, tell him those words, and, and, and he had no choice but to do so. Irving Bunim writes, when he heard the translation, Morgenthau put his head down for a long time, and he rose from his armchair. And looking the Rosh Hashiva straight in the eyes said, Tell the rabbi, I'm a Jew. Not only would I give up my position, I would sacrifice my life to save my fellow Jews. And for me, those words ring. Those words should be inscribed in, in, in huge letters in important places for everyone to look at. When you hear a story like this and you understand what is it, this insistence that Am Yisrael depends on Gedolim, on great Torah leaders, right? For me, this is one of these things in which you see only a leader who's basically a nuclear reactor can do the heavy lifting, can move the mountains, convince people of such things. Part one of the story about Aaron Kotler, this incredible fissile core that was developed in Europe was then shipped over to America, Shemesh Ahakash arranged that it should be there to build on the new shores. Beautiful. Beautiful.